15 in your Bibles. We'll resume our study on interpretation that we began last week. We'll make the transition here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 15. All right, we're ready. We ready back there? There we go. Grand view of God's Word, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 15. And of course, uh, we've looked at revelation and uh, inspiration, canonization, preservation, and now we're looking at interpretation. We'll finish, Lord willing, what we began last week on uh, that study of hermeneutics that we've teasingly said is a disease that preachers have. And... uh, All right, it's not funny anymore. All right, lame joke. Anyway, uh, hermeneutics, the the study of interpretation, of course, we defined that, and we also talked about the word exegesis, drawing out of, and I'll tell you what, I'm just going to go backwards here just a little bit. Uh, Hermeneutics, let me go back one more. There we go. Hermeneutics is the study of the principles of interpretation. We saw the word exegesis. It's the idea of drawing out. Uh, In other words, you don't read into the Bible what you want it to mean. You draw out of the Bible what God intended it to mean. Okay, And uh, then you take all the pieces. Exegesis is, as you remember from the pictures, exegesis is the nuts and the bolts. Okay, And then the functional piece of machinery is what we might call hermeneutics or interpretation. That's the functional whole. And for you ladies, we use the illustration of the ingredients of bread making as well. The meaning of the word, I'll just quickly move through these. Uh, since we looked at these last week. But uh, anyway, this evening, you remember we began or we finished last week by looking at these two pictures. Based on 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 15, Paul in his last will and testament is uh, basically giving to Timothy the, the, the things that are forefront in his thinking. He does this under inspiration. And rightly handling the word of God was at the top of the list in Paul's thinking. And he told Timothy, study, it's the Greek word spudazo, be diligent. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And then what are the next two words? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, The the two two words rightly dividing translate one Greek word. It's the Greek word orthotomeo, which means to cut straight. Now, you think about the word, we talk about orthopedics, uh, we talk also about the word orthodontics. Ortho means straight, dontics means what, Lily? Do you know? Teeth. An orthodontist is a doctor that helps with straight teeth. I have put a lot of money in orthodontists lately. I got two, one in a set of Vivos, which is a high-powered pair of braces and another one in a full set of braces, uh, straight teeth. And so you can see the connection of the word there when it comes to rightly dividing. And the picture there, if we, if you can see the first picture there of that lady cutting according to a pattern. It's not just cutting something up, but it's cutting along the lines, get it, so that when you take the individual pieces of the pattern and put them together, everything fits. You have a functional whole, and that was the purpose of the picture of the tent as well. And you can see the seams there. And Paul is a tent maker when he talked about uh, rightly dividing the word of truth and cutting according to the lines, cutting straight according to the lines and the patterns, handling God's word as God intended his word to be handled. 
Uh, you can imagine that he, as a tent maker, had in mind the importance of cutting according to the pattern lines and then putting all the pieces together. Because, listen, folks' eternal destiny hinges on rightly handling the Word of God. Okay? And so it's an, it, 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 we cannot overestimate uh, the importance of this. Now, so tonight we're going to answer the question. How then do we rightly divide? Do we cut according to the pattern? Do we rightly interpret the Word of God? And we're going to answer that with uh, six uh, characteristics of how we do that. How do you interpret the Bible? And I want you to notice these. I'm going to give these one at a time. I'm going to move slowly this evening. Uh, Someone mentioned last week, do you think you put this in a handout? And I could do that. You can go back if you'd like to and... Uh, online, this is recorded, and you can see each of these. And uh, anyway, write them down. I'm going to do these one at a time because I know how I am. If all of them popped up there at once, it'd be overwhelming. I'd be reading the whole thing, and I would miss something. So here you go. When we rightly divide, if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth, the first characteristic of how we do that is we do it literally. Okay, literally, or we could say this. Normally, I like how uh, Bible students have said this in the past. The Bible is a self-interpreting book. Okay, It's a self-interpreting book. In other words, the Bible gives us the keys for how to understand it, how to interpret it. Or shall I say it this way? God gave us in His Word the keys for how to understand and interpret His Word. And when we talk about handling or interpreting the Word of God literally or normally... We do so with the simple understanding that God says what he means and he means what he says. Okay, And he means for his word to be understood. And that's why it's so important that it be in the vernacular, in the language of the people. And to me, it's one of the most moving studies of Christian history. Those who have understood the importance of the word of God being in the language of people. Can you imagine? No wonder we call the dark ages the dark ages. Because the common man didn't have the Bible in his tongue. It was in Latin, and it had to be interpreted through a priest who wasn't even in probably 99% of the cases born again. Okay. And so in Latin, people couldn't understand it. Praise God for people who did in the work of translation and giving us faithful copies of the Word of God. Okay. And I think about Nehemiah, here are a couple of passages of scriptures. We think about, here it is, God giving us the keys by which we interpret his word. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse number 8, Ezra and his fellow Levites, the Bible tells us that they spoke or gave the word of God distinctly, and they gave the sense, okay, they gave the sense of it, what it meant. Ezra would read the word of God, and they had services that ran the length of most of a day, in case you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> we start watching our watches when we get to an hour. You know, what does Vance Havner said years ago? A lot of churches' services begin at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dull. Okay. All right. Nehemiah 8.8. 8, Nehemiah would read large portions of the Old Testament, and then these uh, associate priests of his or Levites his would go down in the gathering, the congregation, and they would explain, this is what Ezra just read, this is what it means. I love Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse number 10. It's a a tremendous uh, passage of scripture that is used when we talk about uh, interpreting the Bible. And the Bible tells us the preacher, the Koholeth, the Solomon, said that the preacher sought out 
acceptable words. And the word there, acceptable, is the idea of delightful, as easy to be understood as possible. I read just this last week, uh, two weeks ago, another book on the translation process and the backdrop of the translation of our King James Version. And of those 54 men that gathered over that period from 1603 to 1611, and of course we have the 1769, but it was fascinating to me that in their final review, a select committee, that uh, one of the things that they were listening for was not just accuracy, but readability. Okay, how, how it sounded to the ear. And that's a very consistent biblical principle. Okay. And then I think about 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 12, and we'll talk a little bit more about this passage in a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 12, Paul said this, we use great plainness of speech. And so we interpret the Bible literally normally. We're not looking for mystical meanings. Or as we talked last week, some allegorical meaning where the, the spiritual meaning that only the elite Gnostics can discern is hidden, if you would, under the story. And the meaning, that mystical meaning is more important than the story or the plain-faced uh, understanding of the scripture. And so it's a self-interpreting book and it is one that we are to take in its plain sense. Now... Somebody just tell me, are there exceptions to that? Are there places in the Bible when we are to interpret it differently? There are. John chapter, now I'm just going to give you these references for the sake of time. You can write these down. You can go back and read these later. John chapter 6 and verses uh, about 54 to 63, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is giving some of his tremendous teaching on the bread of life. And he says this, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You can't have eternal life. You have no part with me, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the Bible said there were some people that heard him, and they said, this is a hard saying. Okay. Now, what did Jesus say? He wasn't saying literally to eat his flesh and drink his blood. By the way, that's become a major stumbling block for Roman Catholics. Transubstantiation, the doctrine that believes that the, the elements of the bread and the juice become the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're partaken. And it's because of a slavish misinterpretation of John chapter number 6. Jesus, in the passage where he says, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he gives the interpretive key. How are we to interpret that? In John chapter 6 and verse number 63, Jesus said this, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and their life what did he do he gave an interpretive key there's a spiritual or a figurative interpretation to what i'm saying here okay and so he gave us the key uh, something similar in galatians chapter number four and paul even uses the word allegory he's contrasting the law and works with faith and grace and he uses Hagar and Ishmael and their story as a picture of the law and works. And he uses Sarah and Isaac as the son of promise, as the picture of faith and grace. And he sets up those stories as a contrast, as a vehicle, if you would, to teach the, the, the principle 
of the fact that the law, what did he say? He said this, cast out the law. Just like the bondwoman was cast out, cast out the law. It's been fulfilled. It is not a means of salvation or sanctification. Okay. And then he said this, the mention of, of Hagar and Ishmael in contrast to uh, Sarah and I, uh, Isaac, these things are an allegory which are an allegory. In other words, he was using an allegory. He's not saying that's exactly what the meaning of the story was, but he was using it as an illustration to teach the contrast. So literally, normally uh, is how we interpret the book. Let me just say this as well, this, the Song of Solomon. I'm not going to go into great detail. All of the little ears are in the fellowship hall tonight. Okay. But uh, it's funny what a battleground Song of Solomon has been when it comes to interpretation. And some of the, can I just say, crazy things that people have seen in the book of Song of Solomon. Okay. And somebody might say, but what about the figurative language that is there? I believe, under inspiration, Solomon used figurative language not because of a figurative interpretation. It is an inspired love manual for a husband and wife. Okay. But he used figurative language, picturesque language, for the sake of appropriateness. Okay. So it's not a figure of interpretation, but he used figures, if you would, for the sake of appropriateness. I remember reading years ago that in some of the stricter of Jewish uh, sects and so on, they wouldn't let single young people read the Song of Solomon until they were 30. Okay. <laughs> And some of, you, some of you parents may say amen to that. But let it, listen, you, I, I'm grateful. I am grateful, okay? I, I'm grateful for, for godly teachers and authors who've written good books on the husband-wife relationship. But in so doing and appreciating those, don't forget that God put his own in the Bible, okay? And the reason he used figurative language was for the sake of appropriateness, so, we rightly divide the word of truth literally, understanding it's a self-interpreting book. Secondly, we do so historically. We interpret the Bible historically. What do you mean by that, Pastor? That is, we look at how Jesus and the apostles handled the Bible. Or we could ask the question this way. How has the Bible been understood, handled, and fulfilled in the past, and in particular, as you see uh, Jesus and the apostles, how they handled the scripture historically, that becomes a pattern for you and for me. Now, let me just cut right to the chase on this, okay? Liberal interpreters say that the first 11 chapters of the Bible are not literal. Okay, now, I'm not going to take a bunch of time to go into this, but literally, if you, literally, there's the word, okay? If you, if you interpret the first 11 chapters of the Bible figuratively, as opposed to there not being actual historical events, you get into all kinds of doctrinal trouble very quickly, okay? Think about this. If the first Adam was not a real man, then how are we to understand the second Adam? Okay. You think about the literal nature of a worldwide flood. You think about the literal event of creation. 
and on and on we could go. You think about other Old Testament historical characters. If Jonah was not a real historical figure, and what happened in his life as it relates to his being swallowed by a great fish didn't literally happen, but it was just kind of a made-up story in order to kind of help carry some nice principles. If Jonah wasn't a real person, then like it or not, you undermine the doctrine of Jesus' bodily resurrection. So, so when we talk about the importance of interpreting the Bible historically, we follow the pattern of Jesus and the apostles. And here's where, here's where it becomes vital. Did Jesus speak of Adam as a literal historical character? Did he speak of Moses as a literal historical character? Jonah, and on and on we could go. And so those who step in and say, well, the first 11 chapters were just allegory. They were not literal events. What they may or may not realize is you've called into question the integrity of Jesus Christ. Okay. How did Jesus handle the Bible? And I'm just going to say this. We want to handle the Bible the way Jesus handled the Bible. Okay. The way the apostles handled the Bible. So... When we ask the question, how do we rightly divide the word of truth? Literally, normally, it's a self-interpreting book. If there are passages where, and by the way, this applies to prophecy too. And this is where we as dispensationalists differ with those who believe in covenant theology and Reformed theology. And that is this. Covenant theologians believe that really, if I can say it this way, somewhere around a fourth of the Bible, the prophetic aspect of the scripture is not to be interpreted literally as it relates to the nation of Israel, but it is to be interpreted allegorically and those promises are spiritually applied to the church because God is done with Israel permanently. Okay. And so you can see the importance of even prophecy being interpreted literally. Because that is the basis for our understanding of the fact God's not done with the nation of Israel yet. He will resume his dealings with the nation of Israel. Okay. There is going to be a literal kingdom on earth called the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Okay. And it's because we handle prophecy, these prophetic elements of Scripture, the way that the Bible intends for them, God intends for them to be handled. Okay. So, literally, historically... Thirdly, grammatically. Grammatically. Words mean things, and so we interpret the Bible. We rightly divide it. Interpret it grammatically according to vocabulary, the etymology of words. It amazes me, and it grieves me how <laughs> there are debates today. And, and, you know, we say, well, of course we interpret it grammatically. And what words mean? And let me just say, for those who believe that God predestined some to salvation and others to damnation, they have reinterpreted the word all. And they say all doesn't really mean all. Okay. And whosoever doesn't really mean whosoever. Okay. So words mean things. Grammar Matters Now, let me just say this at this point, okay? You might be sitting here, you might think, Pastor, every once in a while you quote a Greek word and give us the grammatical, the, the tense, and so on. Listen, in all sincerity, I want to say this. I'm not doing that to impress anybody. 
Okay, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help us all to see that grammar matters. Okay, and, and the tense of a verb, whole doctrines, and I'm going to show you this in just a moment. You can see some of these passages of scripture. Whole doctrines hinge on the tense of a verb that Paul used. Okay, now I want to say this too. You don't have to have a college degree with four years of Greek in order to get some of that stuff. I, I just want to, there are some amazing software programs and tools that anybody in this room can have. Matter of fact, last night, one of my, and, and I'll tell you this, I'm married to a smart woman, okay? But last night, I logged her into a, one of my favorite Bible programs that I use every day of the week. And I was showing her how to use it. She didn't have a day of Greek when she went to Bible college. But she can click on a hot link on a word in the text, and she can pull up information that helps her understand better the Scripture. And anybody in this room can do that. If you want to know what the Bible program is, I'll tell you later on. Okay. All right. But vocab, syntax, that's how all the words fit together in a sentence. The tense of verbs. I think about this. Let me just give you a few examples. Uh, the double negatives. Of John chapter number 10, verses 28 and 29. Now, in the English language, two negatives make a positive. Don't not eat that. That's the same as saying, eat it. Okay. But in the Greek, the original Greek that the New Testament was first written, and you put two negatives together, it makes it all the stronger of a negative to the point, get this, of impossibility. So that when Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. They shall never perish. It's a double negative. They shall not ever perish. It is an impossibility. How does that affect eternal security? I think about the perfect tense in the original in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith. It's a perfect tense. A perfect tense in the original language is the idea of a work that was accomplished in the past. The effects of it carry on through the present all the way into eternity. How does that affect your salvation? <laughs> For by grace are you saved, born again. We are being saved, sanctification and secure, if you would, all the way to ultimate or final salvation, which is glorification. The three different tenses all wrapped up in one tense. For by grace are you saved through faith. What did I do? I bumped ahead. I got excited here. <laughs> Kept pushing the buttons. I need to put this thing down. Oh, I'm talking. Here we go. I looked up and the screen was blank. That's disconcerting. Matthew chapter 4. Think about this. Three times in this temptation from Satan, the Lord Jesus Christ said, it is written. It's the Greek word, gegraptai, which means it stands written. In other words, it was authoritative when Moses, under inspiration, wrote it. In the book of Deuteronomy, it is authoritative now, and it will continue authoritative. It stands written, it stands written, it stands written. John chapter 19 and verse number 30, one of the last sayings of Christ on the cross, it is finished. Tetelestai. It stands finished. In other words, nothing needs to be added to it. There's no way it can ever be unfinished. 
Okay? It can't be rescinded. It's done. The great transaction is done. And, and so we, can, we're shouting about grammar tonight. It matters. It matters. Okay. I think about prepositions. Romans chapter number 8. I'm spending a little more time on this than I meant to, but Romans 8, 32. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. There are a couple of different prepositions in the original that, that are in our King James Version translated for. Okay, The one that Paul uses, there's one that means I can do something for your benefit or as an example to you. Okay, So that it could be said, you know, Jesus Christ was delivered for us all in the sense of as an example. Okay. By the way, deficient forms of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ have taken that position. That what Jesus did was just as an example. That's a deficient form or view of the atonement. Jesus dying for you is an example of how you should sacrifice for others. Can I just say this? That's not enough to atone for your sin and to get you into heaven. Okay. The preposition, and, and there are other places in the scripture where it's used that way, but not, not as it relates to the atonement. The one that Paul uses here doesn't just speak about doing something for an example or as an example or for the benefit of someone in some generic way, but it literally means this. When Jesus was delivered for us all, it literally means he stepped into my place as a substitute for me to pay a debt, to be delivered up in a way, and to do something for me I could not do for myself. He did it for me. And it all hinges on a part of speech. A preposition. Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 7, the resurrection. That great passage where Jesus Christ was delivered from death. As he prayed there in Gethsemane and he was heard and that he feared and, and he was delivered from death. The preposition that is used there. You know, there's a sense in which a person could be delivered from death in the sense that they were in the jaws of death and snatched out of the danger, but never really experienced death. And by the way, a preposition that communicates that is in the Greek language, but that's not the one that Paul uses. He uses the one that literally speaks of Jesus fully experiencing death and then being raised alive out of the full experience of death. Okay, Jesus didn't just swoon in the grave, some liberals say, or faint and then was revived in the cool of the tomb. The preposition that the preposition that the author of Hebrews used contradicts that false position and clearly says Jesus was dead. <laughs> and that's crucial because his death counted for mine. If he didn't really die, Prepositions. So, cut us preachers some slack when we make big deals about this stuff. Okay? Because we want people to know, as we rightly divide, handle the Word of God, we want people to know that their faith is firmly founded. Okay? Upon on 
specific grammar and tense and preposition on the very words of God. Not, this, is not, this is not man's writing down of his ideas about God. God put every word and every tense and every preposition here that he wanted us to have. Okay. Continued, and I've got to move quickly through this contextually. Contextually, that is you interpret a verse of scripture in its context. And there are different kinds of context. There's historical context. And of course, context of a verse in a chapter within a book. And you have to understand what the purpose of a book is and so on. I'm just going to quickly move through these examples. Psalm 92, 12 is interesting. The righteous, and I'm paraphrasing, the righteous <laughs> will be like a palm tree. Now, we live here in the south, close to the coast. Palm trees are amazingly durable, aren't they? Now they can stand up. I mean, a hurricane can knock them over. A few days later, back up they come. Okay. And so I get that when the psalmist says in Psalm 92, the righteous are like a palm tree. But then he goes to say they're like the cedars of Lebanon. I come from the Midwest where cedars are more a nuisance than anything. They, they scrub up fields and fence lines. I don't think... Awesome, big, powerful when I think cedar. But the psalmist is talking about the cedars of Lebanon, which were so big, so massive, they're kind of like our sequoias, if I can say that, our oaks. They were big enough and strong enough that they could be used as the beamwork, the framework of temples and palaces. So all of a sudden you get some context, some historical context. I'm not going to get into Hebrews 6 tonight. You can see I got it up there. But let me just say this. The purpose of the author of Hebrews under inspiration makes it clear that whatever he's talking about in Hebrews chapter number 6, he's not saying you can lose your salvation. Okay. Joel chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Uh, be, write this down. Look at it on your own. Several years, I'm, the only, I'm saying this. I want you to understand this matters because several years ago uh, when there was a Another surge of the liberals and progressives right after a shooting somewhere taking place, wanting to outlaw assault rifles or some. And let me just say right here at the beginning, I believe in the Second Amendment. Okay. I have firearms in my home. I have handguns in my room that I know how to use. And if necessary... I would use them to protect my family. Okay. I'm just prefacing by saying that, okay. But in a, several years ago, there was another skirmish going on in the government, and the progressives were calling for outlawing some kind of firearm. And a, a young man who is in the ministry posted on social media, Joel 3, 9 and 10. The verse where God calls the Gentiles to... Beat their plowshares into swords. And he said, now all you American Christians, get your guns. And he used Joel 3, 9, and 10 as a basis for calling everybody to get their guns. Read Joel 3, 9, and 10 sometime. When I read it, I just went, oh. God is calling the Gentiles to beat their plowshares into swords at the valley of Jehoshaphat for the battle of Armageddon. 
it's not even a positive context. In the sense of, hey, get your guns. It's not even the, the context is God telling the Gentiles, the armies of the world who are gathering together against his people, Israel, go ahead. Beat your plowshares into swords. Come to the valley of, the Jeho- of Jehoshaphat because that is where he's going to destroy them. Needless to say, it is taking that passage seriously out of context and definitely handling it far and away from God's intended meaning and what he's saying in that passage. Okay, now I wanted to make it clear I believe in the Second Amendment before I just waxed so strongly against that, okay? Dispensationally, and I'm watching the time here, dispensationally, uh, the word dispensation is used four times in the New Testament. Okay, it translates the Greek word oikonomos, which means house rule or law. Okay, house rule or law. It's the understanding that there are different times in history, biblical history, where there are different stewardships, uh, different ways of dealing with God's people at different times. Okay, I think about Luke chapter 16, in verse number 16, Jesus said this, the law and the prophets prophesy until John. Okay, but then look, look at Luke 16, if you would. I'm, I don't want to... Uh, I've had it more clearly in my head. I'm just going to turn right there. Luke 16 and verse number 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. What's Jesus doing? He's identifying a change. And every man presseth into it. Okay? John 1.17. Okay? The law came from who? The law was by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to get into how many different dispensations there are, things like that, but it's the understanding that there's a difference between the nation of Israel and the New Testament church. And by the way, that distinction is maintained throughout the entire New Testament all the way into the book of Revelation. Okay. The distinction of that. Uh, I've put the words to the song up here. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. Let me just tell you, there's some promises in the book. We might make some application for our lives, but they're not for the church. They're for the nation of Israel. There are particular standards in the Old Testament that are not for the church. They were for the nation of Israel, okay? Now, and I'm reading through. Today, the last several days, I've read through Leviticus, and I'm into Numbers. Whew. Okay. The nation of Israel, one of their major purposes was to be used of God to bring Messiah to the world. Okay. Into the world, if you would. And in order to maintain clear national identity and distinction and purity, there were laws, and there were other purposes for the law, but laws that God put on the nation of Israel that were for the nation of Israel, period. In order to protect the uniqueness, the identity, that national identity. In order to preserve, if I can say it this way, the seed line of Messiah from Eden to Bethlehem. Now, this is not in any way saying that the church just throws off holiness. Don't get me wrong. Okay? I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. So, the nation of Israel, let me say it this way. The nation of Israel... God's purpose for them was to be used of God as a channel to bring Messiah into the world 
And his purpose for the church is to take Messiah out to the world. It's one of his purposes for us. The Great Commission. And Paul, with that in mind, would say in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, he would say, listen, to those that are under the law, I'm as under the law. In order to get the gospel to them. Those who are not under the law, talking about Gentile people. He said, I'm as without the law. Then he makes it clear, and you can see it in parentheses, 1 Corinthians 9. Not without a law to God and fulfilling the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love. That's the law of Christ, the new commandment that he gives. Okay. But as far as Old Testament legal regulations and ceremonial regulations, is it related to the nation of Israel? By the way, Jesus fulfilled them all. He fulfilled them all. And that's part of the beauty of Christ. I, I'm running very thin on time here, but the purposes of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is to show that God's not done with the people of Israel. He still has a plan for them. And yet he's bringing, he maintains the distinction. Let me just say this. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is not about some people being predestined to heaven and others being predestined to hell. It's, it's, it strikes me, and I looked at it again this afternoon, it strikes me that in a passage that some say, well, that, that's where God's teaching, uh, some are predestined to heaven and some are predestined to damnation, that in that same passage, in that same passage, Romans 9, 10, 11 We're told that salvation is for all, and whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want to, in my more facetious moments, want to say, what part of whosoever don't we understand here? Okay. That's not even what God's talking about in that passage of Scripture. Okay. 1 Corinthians 13, as it relates to temporary sign gifts. Okay, there's distinction made. Let me illustrate it this way when it comes to dispensation. Uh, some arguments against dispensationalism uh, have been this, that God would be uh, one who changes them. Okay. And here's an illustration that's helped me over the years, and that is this. Okay. Uh, where's Elena? My uh, youngest daughter to this point, of those that have been born, okay, is back here. And then in June, Grace and I are expecting another daughter. Okay, same dad, same dad. But when the little one that she's carrying in her womb now is two or three years old, Elena will be 16, 17 years old. Am I going to have a different set of rules? Am I going to let a three-year-old drive? You see what I'm saying? I'm the same dad. And yet, based on a period of life, I'm going to have a different set of standards and rules. Okay? It doesn't mean I'm changing. And so it is with our God. There are different times when he's worked in different ways for specific purposes, but he's been the same God. Working under an ultimate and a divine and a perfect whole plan. And we're just getting a little glimpse of it. Okay. But anyway, there's more that can be said about that. And then comparatively, Scripture with Scripture. So, uh, we interpret literally, normally, historically, contextually, dispensationally, uh, comparatively, Scripture with Scripture. Uh, one of my favorite Baptists of the Reformation era was a man named Balser Hubmeyer. And uh, he used the illustration of collective light. He said, when you have a passage of Scripture that it's difficult to understand, 
He said, then you find all the other passages of Scripture that speak of the same subject. You take the light of that one and the light of that one and the light of this one and you bring them all together and you let them all shed light on that obscure passage of Scripture. That's Scripture with Scripture. Okay? And that is one of the ways that God means for us to handle the Word of God, His Word. Okay? I think about 1 Corinthians 15, 29. <laughs> I picked this statistic up in a book years ago. What did I do? I bumped back again. Man alive. Better put this thing up. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Look at this passage real quick, if you would. And I'm going to have to wrap this up. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Okay, let's do this context. Somebody tell me, what's the context, 1 Corinthians 15? Resurrection. Okay, and basically Paul takes it in two different sections. Okay, he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verses 1 to 20, if I remember correctly. And then the rest of the chapter is the application and the hope of our resurrection based on Christ's resurrection. And remember several times there's this motif, if you would, this theme, if Christ be not raised, if Christ be not raised, if Christ be not raised, but now is Christ raised. Okay, and so the context is the resurrection. Notice, if you would, verse number 25. In the middle of that, Paul says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? In Christian history, those who have studied theology and interpretation of Christian history have found over 200 interpretations for that verse right there. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Uh, we'll not go into detail on this, but what have the Mormons done with that? Okay, let me just say this. It doesn't mean what the Mormons say it means. Okay. And boy, you start thinking about, okay, what's Paul talking about? Paul's talking about the motivation, the reality of the resurrection, the motivation of the resurrection. He mentions the word baptism. Let me just cut to the chase here and say simple. What I think Paul means here is this. If, okay, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? He's talking about believers that are dying in persecution or physical death. And then we win new people to Christ who follow the Lord and believers' baptism by immersion in order to take up their place in the ranks of the churches and the family of God in order for the faith to keep moving forward even though there's death, even though there's persecution. In this life, physical death, we keep winning people to Jesus. We keep baptizing them into the body of Christ. And the army of the Lord keeps moving forward. And the whole point I think Paul's making is this. Why do we keep doing that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? It's pointless to keep doing that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But he did. So let's keep winning people to Christ. <laughs> let's keep the full cycle of the Great Commission going on, okay? So comparatively, you put all the pieces together from other passages of Scripture. What's the purpose of the Old Testament then? I know I'm going over tonight, but i got to get this done, okay? Um, what's the purpose of the Old Testament law? Let me just quickly move through these. First of all, illustration. Illustration. These things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Paul then would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the things of the Old Testament, those Old Testament accounts were written for us as an example. Take an example. Don't lust after the, the idols and the things of this world like the people in the Old Testament did. They're written for application. At Romans chapter number 12 and verse number 19 Paul tells the church at Rome, listen, don't venge yourself. Why not? Because he quotes the Old Testament verse, vengeance is the Lord's, he will repay. So don't you avenge yourself. Let God take care of it. 
Another purpose of the Old Testament is the demonstration of fulfillment. Over a dozen times in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew says this was done that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. To show us that what God said and set in motion in the Old Testament, He has fulfilled it and will fulfill it. Okay. One of the great benefits of the Old Testament is to give us tremendous information about the attributes of God and the foundation of His plan. Okay. I'm telling you, the more I study the Bible, the more I realize that there is one mind and one heart behind this blessed old book that we hold in our hands. You see the unity of that. I've got an illustration I'll show you in just a moment to demonstrate that. And then this, the Old Testament cannot but create an anticipation for Jesus Christ. As I was reading through Leviticus, (laughs) and all of the details of the tabernacle and the priest's clothing and uh, all of the, the, the order of the nation of Israel and all of the different offerings, the sin offering and the trespass offering and the peace offering and the burnt offering and all of those different details and the tediousness of it. Do you know what I found my heart crying out over and over and over? Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. He's the priest. He's the lamb. He's the one who tabernacled among us. He's the temple, if you would. Okay. He's he's the perfect fulfillment of all of this. I'm really glad. I was thinking about this. When we have to take down these partitions, put them up and take them down. I know that's a little bit extra work for our current format with our adult Sunday school. But then I got into Leviticus and Numbers and started reading about what it was like every time the pillar of fire of the cloud lifted off the tabernacle and God said, it's time to move. And those guys had to start deconstructing the tabernacle and covering the furniture and some of them couldn't see the furniture even though there were Levites who could carry it. And one kind of Levite had to cover it so the other Levite could carry it. Because if he saw it uncovered, it would kill him. Thank you for Jesus, right? Thank you for the New Testament church. So the Old Testament creates an anticipation of Christ. I remember the funeral that we had several years ago. A Jewish lady had gotten saved. We had her service here, but some of the unsaved Jewish family wanted a rabbi to come do the graveside. And I remember, and several of us were there, I remember standing at that grave and hearing that rabbi, some of you were there, reading Old Testament scripture, singing in Hebrew that I don't even know that he knew what it meant. But then as he would read some of those Old Testament passages, I was just, I, this is what I felt like. I'm like, the key was missing. The key was missing. Who is the key? Jesus is missing. Okay. Two final quotes. If the plain sense makes common sense, then seek no other sense. It comes to interpret in the Bible. Any of you have heard that before. Someone else said this years ago, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Then let me just give you these two pictures. picture that illustrates what happens when somebody doesn't interpret the Bible clearly. Anybody read that? You twist it, it's hard to understand. But when we're like Paul and we use great plainness of speech, God's people and the lost are brought to Christ through a right understanding. This is an inter- How many of you have seen this before? A couple of you have seen it. Okay. Let me just, and, and you can find this online. 
okay, these are some guys that were students of the Bible that put this together years ago. And they, their, their purpose was with a visible graph, if you would, an illustration to demonstrate the unity of the Bible. Okay, in picture form. So I'm going to use a laser pointer here, and I'm going to do this, and then we'll uh, close tonight. You can see this white line along the bottom, and if you can see it close enough, you can see there all the little lines dropping down. Okay, this represents Genesis all the way through Revelation. There's an alternating, if you see it up close, dark gray, light gray, dark gray, light gray, every book of the Bible, all the way through, dark gray, light gray. Okay, and each of these different lines represents the length of the chapters in that book of the Bible. Okay, see this long line right here? Everybody see that? Guess what chapter of the Bible that is? Psalm 119. Okay, now, all of these lines demonstrate, get this, 64,000 connections between the individual chapters of the Bible. Okay, 64,000 cross-references, 64,000 verses that are connected and speaking of the same theme or the same issue, okay? Is that, does everybody follow me on that so far? Okay, all right. And then notice this, the colors, the different colors, these darker colors down here in the bottom, the blues and the purples, okay? Those represent closer connections as far as between books, Okay. The further the connection gets, you can see the lines spread out. Okay, so Genesis 1 connected all the way to Revelation 22. Uh, he made all things the first time, but man in his sin brought the curse in. But there's a day coming when he's going to make all things new. <laughs> okay, so, and you can see, so the remoteness of the connection is more of these top colors here. But it just... It, what does it show? It's just a visible, a simple visible illustration of the unity of that blessed old book that you hold in your hand. Okay. It's reliable. What a picture it creates in our minds. But listen, when somebody doesn't handle it the way that God meant for it to be handled, it, uh, everything unravels. Okay. So let us determine we're going to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. We don't want to get to heaven someday and the Lord say to us, what did you do with my book? You taught what? Okay. It's better for a millstone. Okay. Serious consequences. I want us to get to heaven one of these days and for the Lord Jesus to say, well done. You handle that book, that blessed old book, the way I meant for it to be handled. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For your word tonight. And God, I am grateful for how when I go back over studies like this, how it just thrills my own heart and uh, brings me a, just a, another touch of revival. I'm grateful for your word. The beauty of it, the power of it, the unity of it. And when it's rightly handled, what a powerful tool for transforming lives of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures so lord we thank you for your word we thank you that it's a self-interpreting book that you give us the clear criteria within it how to handle it properly so that it can be used as a mighty weapon as a mighty tool as an instrument of life as we seek to serve you in all that we do. Now, Lord, I pray for your blessing on our closing tonight. 
And I ask you, Lord, uh, that we would go out of here with a renewed um, trust in the word of God. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.